Today, Juan Otto is here for the 11th hour to discuss bad bets and when they pay off. In other words, when to break the rules. And there are so many rules that when I sat down to write this introduction, I immediately thought of a dozen. Show, don't tell, write what you know, never break point of view, never write in passive voice, adjectives and adverbs weaken sentences. Germanic words are stronger than Latinate ones. Readers are always suspicious of a convenient coincidence. Readers read for characters first and foremost. Dialogue tags should always be said. A good narrative is always causal. If there is a gun in the story, it must always go off by the end. Epiphanies are overrated. The best endings are both surprising and inevitable. Of course, rules are binary by nature, and for each rule I can think of, uh, there is a wonderful story, and many wonderful stories, I'm sure, that break them. Alice Monroe, of course, is known for her passive sentences, her lapses in time that give a kind of haunting quality. There's The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World by Gabrielle Garcia Marquez, whose point of telling is from the community, and, who, and which dips into the point of view of a dead man at the end of the story. The House in Paris by Elizabeth Bowen has a number of authorial uh, directives breaking out of point of view. Or of course, as someone mentioned earlier this week, there's a portrait of a man by Joyce, who, which is known for its famous epiphany at the end. Lon Otto is here to elaborate about these bad bets and broken rules, when to hold steady and when to fold. Lon Otto has published two collections of short stories, A Nest of Hooks and Cover Me. His work has appeared in publications such as The Colorado Review, Prairie Shoner, American Fiction, and Stonewater Review. He has also been broadcast on NPR's Selected Shorts and All Things Considered. He has a new collection of short stories titled A Man in Trouble, forthcoming for Bright Horse Books. Please join me in welcoming him now. Let me thank you for being here this morning to participate in what may turn out to be the most damaging craft talk I've ever given. I've given 11 o'clock, and I've given 11 o'clock talks here at the University of Iowa on such topics as writer's voodoo and burning away your virtues. I don't intend for it to damage anyone's writing, and I certainly hope it doesn't. But if you walk out early at just the right moment, this morning you might be in some trouble. When I was a kid, I played a lot of baseball, usually center field, and my hero was the great Willie Mays, the say hey kid who played for the New York and then the San Francisco Giants, one of the greatest outfielders in the history of the game. Mays was famous for, among other things, using the basket catch, catching the ball like this, glove close to his chest, palm up, fingers pointing forward, as opposed to how everyone else did it. Arms extended, moving the glove to right or left, up, down, whatever most efficiently brings the pocket of the glove into the path of the ball. 
because Mays was so stylish, so successful, so very, very cool. My friends and I tried remorselessly to emulate him, hitting each other, towering fly balls, the kid in the outfield trying frantically to get into position underneath it so that the ball would land in the basket of his glove, held horizontally close to his chest like a precious offering of hot rolls. It is, however, extremely difficult to catch a ball this way. It demands that your entire body be in exactly the right position relative to the ball, instead of just reaching for it with extended arms after getting as close as you can manage. The basket catch worked beautifully for Willie Mays, who was a superb athlete, fast and agile, and possessed of uncanny judgment for where the trajectory of a fly ball would return it to earth. My friends and I were neither very fast nor especially agile, and most importantly, we had no gift at all for calculating the downward trajectory of a hard-hit baseball. We missed far more than we caught, and I was struck in the face more often than is recommended. <laughs> One fly ball permanently rearranging the slope of my nose after which I gave it up and returned to the less exciting, less stylish, less impressive, but more reliable technique. As a teacher of creative writing, I often use this example to support my insistence that students learn the high percentage moves in writing, learn by carefully reading as writers, and then by practicing and practicing the techniques and approaches that are most likely to pay off literary techniques, moves, ways of doing things that have evolved over centuries, that have survived because they are the fittest to achieve what most writers want to achieve most of the time, to attract and hold a reader's attention, to convince, to surprise, to move the reader, to thrill and amuse and lodge deeply in the reader's mind and heart, to write stories that involve conflict and complication, include in an unanticipated yet inevitable way, to write poems that use surprising and uncliched language and vivid, fresh imagery, to use a full array of techniques to develop believable, distinctive, engaging characters, to tell the truth in nonfiction according to the accepted principles of the, accept, of the specific genre. This is just smart. This is even common sense. Reaching out for a plummeting baseball rather than trying to get your whole body situated beneath it so that it lands inches from your chest. And yet, and yet, whenever I hear somebody talking about the rules of writing, saying never or always or you must, some part of me wants to say, oh yeah? Oh yeah? And how about this writer or that writer in this or that book or story or poem or essay or play? She or he didn't know about your precious rule, apparently. This little talk listens to that contrarian, teacher-aggravating voice. 
and I hope you'll be complicit with me in the listening, thinking during the monologue portion of this hour about rules that have been laid on you that you maybe feel yourself rebelling against at times, and books you've read that seem to succeed despite, despite uh, choices um, that most sensible, well-informed people would regard as bad bets moves unlikely to accomplish what most writers and publishers would hope to accomplish. Well, think about why those choices are, generally speaking, bad bets, and then speculate a little on why they might have paid off. The seeds for this talk were planted 20 years ago when Scottish writer James Kelman came to give a reading at the university where I was teaching in St. Paul. Kelman's most recent novel, How Late It Was, How Late, had just won the British Commonwealth's Man Booker Prize, one of the richest and most prestigious literary honors in the world, like the Pulitzer Prize times 20. And many critics were outraged, mostly for its language. One critic counted the number of instances of the F word, which was in the thousands. This wasn't what struck me, however. I was struck by the number of low percentage moves this honored book embodied, beginning with that peculiar title, How Late It Was, How Late, which was to be wild to remember what that, what that title even was. There, was no, there are no chapter divisions at all. The book is all one great rush of mostly dark experience from one character's closely identified point of view. It never gets out of the voice and mind and body and language of that one character who is irresponsible, uneducated, speaks in thick Glaswegian, it's from Glasgow, Glaswegian dialect, which includes a rich layer of obscenities. I'm going to read you the first few pages of How Late It Was, How Late, in which this character, Sammy, comes to um, business district comes to after having passed out in a drunken stupor the night before and discovers that someone has stolen his leather shoes off his feet and replaced them with trainers, athletic shoes. I should note that the F word, and this quite possibly eliminates this as a potential podcast, I don't know. I should note that the F word that appears thousands of times in this book is never once used for sex in this book. Just as a female version of the C word, equally frequent in the book, is never used to refer to a woman. That's just a part of the texture of the language. So here, here are a couple, couple pages. First, first two pages. You wake in a corner and stay there, hoping your body will disappear, the thoughts smothering you, these thoughts, but you want to remember and face up to things, just something keeps you from doing it. What can, what can you know do it? The words filling your head, then the other words, there's something wrong, there's something far, far wrong, you're no a good man, you're just no good man edging back into awareness of where you are here, slumped in this corner with these thoughts filling you. And oh Christ, his back was sore, stiff, and the head pounding. He shivered and hunched up his shoulders, shut his eyes, rubbed into the corners with his fingertips, seeing all kinds of spots and lights. Where in the name of fuck? 
He was here, he was leaning against old rusty palings with pointed spikes, some missing or broke off, and he looked again and saw it was a wee bed of grassy weeds that was what he was sitting on. His feet were back in view. He studied them. He was wearing an old pair of trainer shoes, for fuck's sake. Where had they come from? He had never seen them before, man. Old fucking trainer shoes. The laces weren't even tied. Where were his leathers? A new pair of leathers, man. He got them a fortnight ago, and now here they were, fucking missing, man. Know what I'm saying? Somebody must have blagged them, miserable bastards. What chance he got? And then left him with these. Some fucking deal. Unless they thought he was dead. Fair enough. You can see that, some poor cunt scratching himself and thinking, nobody's there, nobody's there. So why not just take them? The guy's dead. Take them. Better that than just sitting there going to waste, disintegrating, Christ's sake. Why not just take them? Fucking bastard, he should have checked properly. Maybe he did. And he saw he wasn't any dead after all, just so he exchanged them, stuck on the trainer's shoes. Fuck it. He shook his head and glanced up the way. People, there were people there, eyes looking, their eyes looking, terrible brightness, and he had to shield his own because of it, like they were godly figures, and the light coming from them was godly or something, but it must have just been the sun high behind them, shining down over their shoulders. Maybe they were tourists. They might have been tourists, strangers to the city for some big fucking business event. And here they were, courtesy of the town council promotions office, being guided around by some beautiful female publicist, publicity officer, with a smart tailored suit and scarlet lips with this wee quiet smile seeing him there but obliged no to hide things take them everywhere in the line of duty these gentlemanly figures foreigners so they could see it all the lot it was probably part of the deal otherwise they weren't going to invest their hard-won fortunes the bottom line man sometimes it's necessary if you're a businessman know what i'm talking about so fair enough, you play your part and give them a smile so they can tell you they you know, know a life different to this end where you are all in. Where what you are, that's part of another type of hole that, that they know well because they've been told about it by the promotional events organizers. So municipal solidarity man, know what I'm saying? The bold Sammy gets to his feet. Then he knelt to knot the laces on the trainers, kidding on he wasn't any shaken for fuck's sake. He was wearing his good trousers. There were stains down there. How come he was wearing the good trousers? Man, fucking bastard. Where the hell were his jeans? Oh, fuck it. Get a grip. Up and walking, up and walking, showing here he wouldn't be stumbling, he wouldn't be toppling, he was fine, he was okay, he was doing it, the bowl of salmon, he was doing it, he was on his way, he was fucking going places, and he moved on and on down the lane, and a guy here looking at him too. How come they're all fucking looking at him? This young, with his big beery face and these cunning wee eyes, then his old belted raincoat, shabby as fuck, he was watching, no watching, but fucking staring, staring right into Sammy. Christ, maybe it was him, maybe it was him, stole the letters. Fuck it. It continues that way, and it's not a long novel, yeah, but it's not a short one either. It's uh, 374 pages, so in a normal sized novel, continues in that vein without interruption um, for, for 373 pages. So what's the bad bet of doing that sort of thing? Sliding into one character's point of view and without interruption 
sticking with it for hundreds and hundreds of pages. Or does that just seem like an obviously good choice? That's, that's my novel. You just described my novel. Uh, we all know that. Yeah. It can be boring. Absolutely. I say, my God. I mean, you was anybody bored just now? Imagine hundreds of pages, though. And again, there, there are some small changes, but, uh, um, but basically that's what you get from beginning. That's what you get from reading. And you're in this guy's head. Uh, sometimes it switches to... It's not consistent, which is another um, uh, bad bet that, uh, that Chen mentioned. It's, it's, it's interrupted a little bit by a um, little bit of first person that gets scattered in there. But basically, you're in this guy's head, and it's essentially uh, 370 uh, three pages of stream of consciousness. That would be another way to describe it. And it absolutely um, could be very, very boring. Yeah. What year was this published? It was published in, uh, I think, 1994 in. Uh, uh, England and 1995 in the U.S. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of James Joyce's Ulysses. This ongoing rambling, but at the same time, there's an elegance to it because the fact both authors are asking the reader to suspend disbelief. You're not getting a story, you're getting an event. And it continues all the way through. And if you have the patience to stick mm -hmm. it out, you're well rewarded. I think that's why yeah. it's sought that way. Uh, a lot of critics didn't see it that way. <laughs> they disagreed violently, who were deeply, deeply offended that this book won the Booker. Uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, it has a, has a lot to do with, with choice. But if you think of Ulysses, it's similar. It follows a guy around. Um, but think of how varied Ulysses is in style and in subject matter. He keeps shifting to different things. Well, you don't like this. Okay. Here's something completely different. It's still in, in Dublin. It's still um, with uh, Leopold Bloom, but it's um, uh, uh, it's radically, radically different in, in style. Uh, even use big capital letters, divide chapters and sections in sort of <laughs> mysterious ways. This uh, it is divided into sentences and um, usually very long, long paragraphs, but it just just goes on. Beginning to end. Yeah. In this book, does anything happen, or does he just? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a lot of things happen, and in, and in fact, that's um, I would say one of the one of the reasons why it works. Um, it's very, it's in fact very eventful. He uh, he's woken up from this um, blackout, discovering that his shoes have been stolen. His good leather shoes have been stolen. Somebody put. <laughs> Trainers back. He complains about those trainers for the whole the whole book. He complains about the, the trainers, um, the athletic shoes. Um, but he, um, he 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 manages to stumble home. He um, gets injured again. He goes blind. A lot of the book, a lot of this stumbling around is done with him blind. And so you are in a blind man's point of view, so he can't even see anything what's going. He hears voices. He goes to the hospital for a while. He has a little exchange with his estranged son. Um, so in fact, he's, he, he, he 
takes himself out of the hospital. He kind of runs away. Um, I think when he's, as I recall, when he's still blind, um, and that's a, it's a temporary thing, but it's real. Um, and uh, so, so it's filled with action. It just keeps uh, all sorts of things happen. Uh, in it. And that's one of the, I think, one of the reasons why the bet um, pays off. If you're going to lock yourself into somebody, plenty of things um, should be happening, and there. Uh, and he. Some some people have compared it to the Book of Job, where he just, you know, he just you know, misfortune and misfortune, and, and he just keeps going on, and he keeps he complains, he curses, and so forth, but he just keeps going on, and uh, and and that I think is. Uh, is absolutely one of the keys. Anything else? Any other problem with, with doing that sort of thing that occurs to you? Yeah. Well, what is that worse about? How is that regarded in Ireland? It's not, it's regarded really horrendously in the USA. Yeah. It's not regarded in the same Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. In this case, it's, it's, it's in Scotland, all right? And it's working class Glasgow which Kelman came out of. Um, most of his early work was, was in uh, uh, Scots dialect. And most of that working class um, um, uh, is what Kelman came from. That was a language that he, he grew up with. And so, um, so the use of, um, uh, for fuck's sake, um, it's, it's just a, it's just tucked in. It's just, it's just, it's just a, a part of the flow of the language. As, as I say, I don't think, and I, I've never gone through the book looking for this. People have done plenty of obsessive things with this book, but I've never, I've never done that to see if it's ever used in reference to having sex. And I think it never is, never once is um, in, in my memory, because I started wondering about that as I was reading it. And I was sort of looking at it and I said, no, it's, it's just for fuck's sake. Uh, fuck all. Um, it's just a expletive. It just it has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a part of the music of the language. And um, um, the word the word cunt is, is used only through, basically as a synonym for a guy. Um, some guy is doing this and that. It's all, and it's always male. It's always male. It's just, it has no, it's completely removed in other words from um, the referent that maybe makes it scandalous to, um, to us. Um, and so it's um, it's wholly integral with the language, and I, I think the the music of a language is the other thing is another thing that um, that makes this this bet pay off. If you're in this guy's head, and, and again, it's free and direct style, which means in other words, using close identified. You're in a guy's head, body, mind, memories. Um, he's not telling the story, but the language is colored by his language or her language if it's a, if it's a woman. And so you um, basically you hear the person in the language even though the person is not talking to us. I think having, if you're going to be in a character's mind, in a character's point of view, that language, just as, well, that language had better be interesting. It better be vivid and surprising and musical. And this, to me, is, um, is a, a Reading isn't like good. My Scots is not that great, but um, but it's 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 music to my ear anyway. Um, and so I, you, you sort of flow on the uh, float along on the surface of that um, beautiful idiomatic language. Yeah. Um, 
doesn't the shock value, uh, if it depends on shock value, it kind of gets a little old? And does it does it ever get a little stale or cliche? Well, I don't think there's any shock value in it. Um, uh, at least not once you once you realize this is just this is just a word that is interjected. It has, has nothing to do with bad thoughts. It has nothing to do with bad actions. It's just a it's just a uh, a part of the, it's just a part it's of his language. Kind of, just a rhythmic kind of word. Yeah. Well, I think it could. Yeah, um, I don't know that, that offending is the issue, but, but you're absolutely right that there are readers, um, that n not every reader um, is going to like it, um, for sure, uh, for all kinds of reasons, for all the other reasons that we have, that we have said. And, um, but, but what I do know is that, and then probably I know this from talking with Kelman, that, that he feels an obligation as a writer to be true to the language that his characters are speaking, and that he would be falsifying uh, something very, very important if he were to, to alter that. That he wanted to capture that kind of language as truly um, and as artfully as he could. That was his, that was his aim, which is not to say that, um, that, that and, and as he was writing it, he's a very smart guy, uh, he wouldn't know what was, not everybody will be will be happy with this, but not everybody's happy with it, with anything. Yeah, you can your hand up. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there is, and and that which brings me to I think maybe the the ultimate answer, um, along with the fact that interesting things happen, um, the language is gorgeous if you have a ear for that language, and it's awful if you don't um, if you don't like that sort of thing. Um, but that you have a character who is intensely vivid. And I'm not just saying this because I'm teaching my students who are, are writing great characters, um, developing their characters this week. Um, it's just true. He's a very, he's just a gorgeous character. He's so complicated. He's absolutely uneducated, but he's has a mind that's interesting. You know, just in that passage where he thinks, oh, why they, they think I was dead? And then he said, well, fair enough. He's always conceding things. Well, fair enough. Uh, if, if, I, if you come across a dead body, it's reasonable to, to, take their, to take their shoes. Fair enough. And then he said, but they should have checked more. I wasn't dead. And he said, well, maybe they did. Maybe they did. And, and that's why they, put the, they gave me these other shoes. And said, so fair enough. His, his, his mind is working like that. He's resentful. He's angry. He's furious a lot of the time. But he's also... He's, he sees how things are looking in that little piece. He, he thinks about what it would be like to be um, a real estate agent or a, a business promoter in Glasgow, leading foreign investors around and saying, oh, you gotta, you gotta show them the dark side. They gotta, they gotta know that. And so that's why they're, that's why they're looking at me now because um, 
got to show the bad as well as the good. I'm a part of the bad right now. So, so he has that kind of complex awareness. He's uneducated, but very smart. Clear that he's very intelligent, makes horrible choices, um, but he's absolutely driven, absolutely has a sense of himself, um, what he wants, um, what he wants to do, and how he wants to do it, and he's just trying to get along. And, uh, and he does. And he, again, certainly there are changes that he goes through. He goes blind for a while, and he manages it. He still manages to get out on the street, and he, uh, I think he, my memory is that he, he actually paints a cane, he finds a cane, and he, and, he, and, he, and he gets some white paint or has somebody paint it for him. So he's got to look the part, he says, he's got to look the part. Um, and he goes stumbling around and uh, uh, trying to accomplish what he, what he wants to, what he wants to accomplish. And um, he certainly gets developed during the course of the novel. And I, I, I think he's a different person at the end than he was before. And, um, and probably if I had to say there was one thing, why this works, is that the character into whom we have been injected by free and direct style is a fabulously interesting character, distinctive and uh, thinks in interesting ways, his imagination is interesting, his relationship with people is interesting. Uh, all of those things that make for a great character. He's, in my mind, he's a touchstone for a, a great character. Yeah. So I have a question. I, I personally really enjoy pets, as you say, and breaking the world uh, rules and all that. So I, I, I think um, that something like this would appeal to me. But to play devil's advocate, um, I'm curious to, if you're writing a, a piece like that, a book, an entire novel, from this one character's perspective, how he works around having a lack of dimensionality in the world because you're not giving these other perspectives or points of view. How, how is he able to? Well, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't. Um, that's, it's a limitation. Right. It's a limitation, absolutely. Um, and again, I, having, having realized that this, this is a book that won, this was what bemused me 20 years ago when I first read this book. And, uh, had just, we had arranged for him to come to, um, to my university before he won the Booker. And he was friends with, with somebody in my department, and otherwise we never could have gotten him. But, but you're right, okay, this has gotten a lot of, this has hit it big. This has hit it big. I don't know if it ever became a bestseller, but it certainly hit it big in terms of the world of literary honor. Um, I thought, this is interesting. These are really, these are not, I am not saying this is a good idea. I'm saying is be skeptical and realize that the, the worst idea can work out under the right under the right circumstances, but it makes it certainly harder. And my view is writing is hard enough under the best of circumstances when you have all the right tools and all that still hellishly difficult. Um, but um, my point is that there are these exceptions, and we need to always temper our honoring of the good advice that we're getting with the fact that, well, okay, that's in most circumstances, that's usually, usually the case. But um, the world that we see through his eyes, I have to say, and through his language is intensely vivid. It's filled with other characters. He encounters a lot of different characters. Uh, his son, they say, um, doctors. Uh, social workers, policemen, lots of people that he interacts with. So it's, it's a 
it's a book crowded with characters, just that we get them all as he perceives them. We see them all through his his perspective. But it's a bit it's a it's a bad idea to do this. And it worked. It's a bad idea to try to catch a uh, plummeting uh, baseball this way. It's just a bad idea. Unless it really means. Uh, in which case it works out beautifully. Yeah. Since you know the author, did he have a he did not. He did not. He came. Uh, he was um, went to work as a bus driver when he was seventeen. Um, went to university. Uh, I think in his mid twenties, maybe maybe even late twenties. So he's always been a, uh, and and that partly accounts accounts for what he knows for sure. He didn't. You don't learn this language at university. And um, and I think it it accounts partly for the, the the weirdness of some of his writing. Now later on, um, this, this was I don't know if it's it's probably not his last book, the code, um, and it was published in 2013. He published a book called again another typical Hellman uh, Kelman title. Mo said she was quirky. Mo. M.O. said she was quirky. Completely memorable. Interesting title, but um, not memorable. Um, uh, he adopted the same basic technique of crawling into a character, adopting a character's perspective in the third person, um, but using her voice. In this case, it was a woman. Um, very different book. Very different book. Um, um, the woman, first of all, it was not really written in Scott's dialect, that Glaswegian dialect. Um, uh, she's been living in, and again, I talked to him about why he did that. He said, well, this is a character who, who's from Glasgow, which is Kelman's town, um, had moved to London, and had been living in London for a while. And so he decided to use more conventional uh, English in her case. So you don't have that intense strangeness, for better or worse. For some people, for people that are really either bored by or offended by or uh, in some other way negatively affected by the, the dialect in how late it was, how late, it would have been a great, a great relief. Um, the character is wonderful. She's, she's very complex. She's um, living with a, uh, a South Asian man, and so it has to do with, with, with race, and they have a child. and. Um, and she's, she's very intelligent, um, but very little happens in that book. You know, there's a question about, does anything happen in this book? And a lot happens here. It's, it's fairly uneventful. Um, she, um, she has a brother who was, she was estranged from, and she, the initiating action of that novel is some homeless guys kind of run across the path of a taxi that she's in going home from work at a casino and, you know, kind of frightening, freaky way. And she thinks, that's my brother. She thinks that. And so throughout the, that's the, the initiating, um, ongoing uh, question. Is that him? Is, is he now living in, is he alive? Is he living in London? Um, 
is he really homeless? Um, is, could anything be done for him? Um, and uh, it's, never, it's never resolved. Um, so there's that. So there's, there's motivation. There's some things happen, but it's very, very uh, uh, minimal in terms of um, people have breakfast. They, probably because they're more functional people. And then one of the things that drives how late it was, how late, is how um, non-functional uh, Sammy is. And uh, whereas Helen, in uh, Mo said she was quirky, is uh, is much less. So, so for me, it was uh, I, I liked the book a lot, but it had none of the. Uh, I, I got a little. Some people talked about once you get tired of this point of view. I have to confess, and I. I feel sort of bad about this, but because I have great loyalty to Kelvin. Um, but uh, uh, I felt a little, a little disappointed just because I, well, I, I wanted it to be this book. I wanted more to happen. Readers are, readers are always doing that. All right. So, anything else about about this? About why it's a bad idea, and 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 why it works out um, uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I think when you, in retrospect, you Oh, oh. I'm sorry. What was what was insulting? Just that, just that. I feel like I'm trying. I feel like I'm being bought by a gimmick. Oh, I got gimmicks for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, uh, okay, if you want gimmicks, let me give you a couple gimmicks. Um, uh, Alphabetical Africa by Walter Abish. He's better known for, well, maybe he's well known for this book, but uh, he's, uh, uh, we'll call it, um, How German Was It? Wonderful, wonderful novel. Well, in this novel, uh, the plot is a little, is sort of minimal, but uh, he adopted this constraint, all right? This constraint. Frost said, you know, free verse is like playing tennis without a net. All right, you gotta have the net there, you gotta have the obstacle, all right? Here, Try this one for an obstacle. Um, he took on the constraint, it's um, 50, 52 chapters, the first chapter, he could only allow himself only to use words beginning with A. Ages ago, Alex, Alan, and Alva arrived at Antibes, and Alva allowing all allowing anyone against Alex's admonition, against Alan's angry assertion, another African amusement. Anyway, as all argued, an awesome African army assembled and arduously advanced against an African anthill, assiduously annihilating ant after ant, and afterward, Alex astonishingly accuses Albert as also accepting African antipodal ant annexation. All right. So he goes on like that for, um, for two pages, and then section, before African adjournment, Alex, Allen, and Alpha arrive at Antibes, beginning a big bash as August. Now we're adding B's, goes on to C, gone until we, we finally get to the 26th chapter. Um, 
Zambia helps fill our zoos and our doubts and our extra wide screens as we sit back. Each year we zigzag between the other lots of Z's in it, also all the other letters in it. And then with the 27th chapter, uh, starts taking, taking letters away. Right? The Z disappears, the Y disappears. Um, until in the end, the last chapter, another abbreviation, another abdomen, another abduction, another aberration, another abhorrent, ass, another abnormal act, another aboriginal. Now that's a gimmick. Uh, this is not a gimmick. This is, this is an extreme version of something that we do all the time, um, but it takes it to a takes it to a, an extreme that, in most cases, would not work would not work out. This this is a gimmick, and this again was a very highly regarded book. <coughs> Alphabetical Africa, Walter Abish's delightful first novel. Were you delighted? <laughs> delightful first novel. I, I I looked at a few. Uh, I need to get a hold of a copy and. Uh, uh, I looked uh, on Amazon and happened to look at a few, um, a few reviews and uh, customer reviews. And one said, "This is the most I mean, maybe I copied it out. Let me see if I did. Oh, yes. Probably the most irritating thing you'll ever read. I couldn't get past more than a few pages of this postmodernist drivel. I can't account for its cult success other than that literary types are apparently easily dazzled." <laughs> Well, you know, my, my short answer would be, don't do it unless you have to do it. Unless something is really driving you to do it, don't do it. It's not smart. You say, when should I use the basket catch? Well, when nothing else works, when, when you're up against the, the wall, and you, Willie Mays is... Uh, most famous catch, and it's, it's called The Catch. You can YouTube. If you, you, if you YouTube search The Catch, it will be this. It was in a World Series, and in this case, it was over his shoulder, and he was back like this by the fence, and catches his ball, and then makes enormous, huge throw um, back, to the, back to the infield. Um, now, there's an instance where maybe that was a smart choice. That was maybe the only bet he had, although he could have done this and this and this. Um, so I'd say, I think that the advice that you get is good advice. Listen to it. Master it. Um, don't abandon it unless something is driving you to abandon it. And that might be utter tedium with your own writing, maybe. I mean, that's, I, I think that maybe that's what was driving um, Walter Abish, although how German was it, is a very, it, it's a more or less conventional novel, but very interesting perspective, very strange in a lot of ways. Um, he clearly could do other things. Um, and that maybe is another answer. Do it when you've absolutely mastered all the smart things, then try a foolish thing. Uh, but don't, it, 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 it's kind of crazy to do it. Now, the, the, the bad thing, this is, a, the, this is why I said I think this could be a damaging, a damaging talk. Uh, if people come out of this thinking, 
oh, so that is all bullshit that, uh, that they've been told. You can do things just any old way you, you want. The fact of the matter is that it's hard enough to do it with the best tools, the best methodology, the, the smartest, most proven technique. It's hard enough then. But at least maintain a certain skepticalness, which I think is, I would say, anybody, anywhere, in any circumstance, it's healthy to remain a little skeptical. To have some part of yourself saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, really? Uh, I just think that's, that's, that's just a healthy, I think that's a healthy way to approach the, the world, but not to be cynical, not to say, oh, none of it has, none of it has meaning, because those tools, and Kelman, his first book, and this is maybe the, uh, the best thing to say about Kelman, his first book was called Greyhound for Breakfast. And it's a mix of, it's a typical first book of a, of a certain time anyway, where it's a lot of miscellaneous things, it's sort of little short shorts and kind of odds and ends, sort of experiments. But the title story of Greyhound for Breakfast is as good of a story, classic form, as has ever been written. And I would, I would stand up here with anybody saying, oh yeah, how about It's just brilliant. Um, and it's absolutely conventional in its form. Um, uh, a guy buys a, uh, a greyhound, working class guy, with the thought, oh my God, I'm really something now. And he goes out with his greyhound, he goes to the pub where his um, friends are drinking, and he thinks, wow, they will be impressed with me. And, and they make fun of him, they, they tease him about it, uh, he gets no respect whatsoever. He leaves in a in a huff. He's walking around. He sees um, what's clearly a gentleman walking a greyhound across the street, and he thinks, "Aha! Here's my compadre. This is where we're, uh, we're uh, greyhound owners." And the guy doesn't look at him. Doesn't acknowledge his presence whatsoever and and he and he keeps wandering around he's afraid to go home because he knows his wife is going to be pissed off that he spent this money on a greyhound um, they don't have that kind of money so he's afraid to go home and he just keeps walking he never waters the dog and never, <laughs> never feeds feeds him because he knows nothing about it but he's but he's locked he's somebody who's made this one rather small decision and it's just a perfect short story okay so I'd say, learn the craft. Um, learn the craft. Learn how to do it. Um, among the other books that I brought, um, one is um, Charles Baxter's uh, First Light, which is told backwards chronologically. It's my brother and a sister, um, and it's told um, in reverse chronological order, chapter by chapter, the, within the chapter. The chapters move forward, but, but then it'll be an earlier chapter and so forth. And... Um, that's a wonderful novel. I don't know that it's his best novel. He didn't do it again, which tells you something, I think. He, he did forward-moving fiction and then uh, a number of times, and then did this, and then went back to moving forward again. Because um, that's the... It, it's, you lose a whole lot when you're going backwards. You lose the element of suspense, among other things. How is this going to come out? Where is this going to go? You lose a sense of development. It's all devolving. It's all moving back. And what you gain is, I don't know, what some of you have read, I'll bet some of you have read First Light. Any, anybody? Charles Baxter? Uh, 
I think there's a there's an intellectual thematic um, motivation for it. It's like you're going. The first light in this case it draws on a lot of um, uh, astronomy um, con conceptions, and uh, the first light is like the Big Bang, going back to uh, that moment when everything when everything started. Um, that's the that's the metaphor of it, and it's very smart. It's he has wonderful characters. Um, but it's a really bad idea on the whole. Other things being equal, it's a very bad idea. It has all kinds of, of disadvantages. And, and if Charles Baxter hadn't mastered um, fiction writing, he absolutely would not have been able to bring, um, to bring this book, to bring this book off. Um, I want to just mention just a, a couple of other books that are, that are more mysterious to me, I think. Um, and um, have any of you read, uh, um, book by uh, Roberto Bolaño. Uh, two of his, the, he's dead, he's been dead for a while, uh, died under kind of re really sad circumstances. But in um, any case, his, the first book that really made it was The Savage Detectives. And this is, uh, it's in translation, this is uh, 600 and, no, 630 some pages. And the subject matter, and here's, you want to know the kind of subject matter that will catch a agent or a, a editor's eye. And poets in Mexico City, members of a kind of underground uh, cult uh, school, school of poets. You can just see your agent drooling over and say, oh, yeah, yes, give me, send me that about poets in Mexico City. What could be more gripping? What could, uh, you know, best as bestseller written all over it? Um, following, uh, and it was a, a New York Times book review, Editor's Choice. Um, following that, um, he published um, 2666. Again, a memorable title. Right? Just leaps off the shelf when you see a book called 2666. Um, it's uh, not so slim as The Savage Detectives. It's um, almost 900 pages. Uh, and its subject, the central subject, is four literary scholars from different countries um, share their subject, which is a, who is a apparently German um, writer, though he has an Italian name, that none of them have ever met, and they're trying to find him, and they're trying to track him down and, and talk to him, because they're literary scholars. That's their, that's their business. Again, what could be more worthy of, uh, and they never find it, apparently. What could be more worthy of uh, 900 pages of, uh, of text? Um, and along with that, but that's, that's the simple part. That's the conventional part of the book. There are these, they, they get at a certain point to a town that they, that's called in the book Santa Teresa. And there are, um, where somebody has been murdering uh, young women very similar to what's going on here. Uh, and uh, 
And so the year 1995 began with the discovery on January 5th of another dead woman. This time it was a skeleton shallowly buried in a field belonging to the Eos de Morelos Farming Cooperative. The farm workers who dug it up didn't know it was a woman. They assumed it was a small man. There was no clothes or anything buried with the skeleton that might have helped identify the remains. The cooperative alerted the police, who showed up six hours later. In addition to taking statements from everyone who had been present when the skeleton was found, they asked whether any worker was missing, whether there had been fights lately, whether there had been a change. You get account after account. Each of them take up about two-thirds of a page. There are, I counted at one point, uh, I think something like 200 pages of this 900-page book consist of these basically police accounts of murdered women who had been discovered remains. And there's, there's some detectives who are working on this case. They never solve it. Um, just, but it's just like that. Just page after page after page after page of these accounts of murdered women uh, whose bodies have been discovered. Some girls, not, not all women. Now there you talk about uh, something that's I want in my novel. I want um, a third of the book to be uh, just newspaper or like police reports of the same kind of thing again and again and again. And they say, well, how possibly could a book like this be published, much less published by um, uh, by major presses? And, and, the, and the answer in this case is there's something obsessively compelling about it. And, um, and above all, there was an editor, uh, senior editor at Farr Strauss named Lauren Stein, who's now the... Uh, the, the primary editor of the Paris Review, and he championed the book. He, he dug it. He thought it was great and um, pushed it and became a hugely, hugely successful book. Um, and it might be successful in the way that Gravity's Rainbow was successful many years before. Um, there were lots of people heard about it, lots of people know about it, lots of people bought it, we don't know how many people read it. Certainly, not. I mean, I did. I absolutely slogged, slogged, slogged through this, and it really—that's what it felt like. It felt like all right. It's like going to the gym. All right. <laughs> By God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see this through. Um, but, um, but there, there just are things that make books successful that you just you can't account for, and you absolutely can't control. So the idea that if I do this weird thing, maybe it'll work out is a horrible, horrible idea. Um, the odds are, are, are higher than if you wrote a, a conventional book against it. And, um, and another one of the, the things I think that, that's a problem with this sort of thing is that people sometimes who say, there's nothing really very distinctive about my subject. I don't really have that much to write about, but maybe I could write about it in a really strange way and people wouldn't notice um, how little I have to say. Now, nobody would articulate that to themselves, but I've, I've worked with enough, um, uh, especially undergraduates, I think, but it doesn't stop there, where you, where you somehow feel, well, this will make it all distinctive, and I, I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the case.
Um, the book that, um, and I'll recommend, recommend a story that, that really got this started, that, um, well, Kelman got it started, but um, just a couple years ago, uh, Anthony Dewar, who's now in the, who's now in the, has a book on the uh, New York Times bestseller list, All the Light We Cannot See, uh, came to, again, came to my university and um, I, I taught his, taught his writing and um, he had a story.